1: Hey, glad you could join us. This is a place where you can find independent opinions for independent thinkers. Now, what makes me qualified to uh, to share such things with you? Truth of the matter is, nothing. You're going to think I'm weird. You're going to think, is he trying to talk me out of listening to the show? Because that's what it sounds like. But no, I'm nobody. At least nobody important. I don't have uh, I don't have fascinating credentials. I'm not good looking. I'm not rich. I'm I'm not even uh, what what people would uh, refer to as moderately successful. But I'll tell you what I am. I am a person who believes that uh, the truth matters especially in times of crisis or in times where there's great uncertainty or upheaval and I'm determined in so far as I can to use the gifts that God gave me and the things that I love most to uh, promote the truth as I understand it. So if you're a person who for whom uh, seeking the truth is more important than simply staying comfortable and fat and, you know, playing games or, you know, watching something on TV, welcome. This is where we revel in wrong think. We do it on a daily basis, and it's made possible by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, monticellocollege.org, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, I know it's important that we continue to move forward from the COVID mania. I, I get that, and I agree with it. It's, well, we have to move on at some point. However, I think we also need to be very careful that we don't move on at the cost of forgetting about who made it happen, not just so we can all throw garbage at them and yell at them. No, it's, it's so we don't ever allow this kind of mania to be inflicted on us Again, Got an article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Forget about COVID, they say. And Tucker says earlier this year, a a phrase was trending because Barry Weiss used it on a talk show. The phrase, I'm done with COVID. Now, many people cheered simply because the subject has been the source of vast oppression for billions of people for two solid years. But he says there are two ways to be over COVID. One is to do what the memo from the consultants of the Democratic National Committee suggested, declare the war on COVID-1 and move on for political reasons. Deaths attributed to COVID nationally are higher now than they were in the summer of 2020 when the whole country was locked down. They're also higher now than during the election of November that same year, but he says today we're just supposed to treat it for what it is, a seasonal virus with a disparate impact on the aged and frail. Rationality is back. And Jeffrey Tucker says in that sense, it's good to forget about COVID if it means living life normally and behaving with clarity about what does and what doesn't work to mitigate a virus. The Democrats decided that the hyper-restrictionist ways were risking political fortunes. Hence, the line and the talking points needed to change. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says another way to get over COVID is to forget completely. About the last two years, especially the astonishing failures of compulsory pandemic controls. Forget about the school closures that cost a generation two years of learning. Forget that hospitals were largely closed to people without a COVID-related malady. Forget about the preventable nursing home deaths. Forget that dentistry was practically abolished for a few months or that one could not even get a haircut. Forget the stay-at-home orders, the church and business closures, the uh, playground and gym closures, the bankruptcies, the travel restrictions, the firings, the crazed advice for everyone to mask up and physically separate, the record drug-related deaths, the mass depression, the segregation, the brutalization of small business, the labor force dropouts, the forced stoppages of art and culture, the capacity limits on venues that forced weddings and funerals to be on Zoom, Forget about taking a closer look at the bogus mathematical models, vaccine trials, the circumstances behind the emergency use authorizations, the adverse effects, the inaccuracies of the PCR test and misclassification of deaths, the billions and trillions of misdirected funds, the division of all workers between essential and non-essential and the millions who were forced to get jabs they did not want. Forget about the possibility of a lab leak, the role of China, The deadly use of ventilators, the neglect of therapeutics, the near banning of all talk of natural immunity, the overselling of the vaccine, the lost religious holidays, the lonely deaths due to the blocking of loved ones from hospitals, the censorship of science, the manipulated and hidden CDC data, the payments to the major media, the symbiotic relationship between government and big tech, the demonization of dissent and the abuse of emergency powers. Forget how health bureaucracies headed by political appointees took over the task of regulating nearly the whole of life while messaging the country that freedom just doesn't matter much anymore. Now, Jeffrey Tucker asks, who precisely benefits from this method of being over COVID? The answer is the unrepentant hegemon that gave us this disaster to begin with. They want to be in the clear. They don't just desire to be exonerated. They don't want to be judged at all. They want to be unaccountable, and the best path toward that end is to foster public amnesia. He says, I don't just mean the Democrats. This calamity began under a Republican president who still retains full hero status. Plus, all Republican governors except one, Christy Noem of South Dakota, bought into the initial lockdowns. So they don't want to talk about it either. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says there's a vast machine extant that desperately wants everyone to forget. Not even forgive, just forget. Don't think about the old thing, think about the new thing instead. Don't learn lessons, don't change the system, don't uproot the bureaucracies, or examine why the court system failed us so miserably until it was too late. Don't seek more information. Don't seek reforms. Don't take away powers from the CDC and NIH, much less Homeland Security. Meanwhile, he says we live in a crisis without precedent. It affects health, economics, law, culture, education, and science. Nothing has been left untouched. The end of travel augmented every pre-existing international tension. The wild government spending and the monetary accommodation of the ballooning debt, in addition to supply chain breakages, are all directly responsible for record levels of inflation. It's much easier to blame Putin than it is to look at the failed policies of the U.S. and many other governments in the world. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says there are so many remaining questions. He says, my own estimate is that we know about 5% of what we need to know to make sense of this whole disaster. For instance, what exactly were Fauci, Collins, Farrar, Burks, and the whole gang doing in February 2020 when they weren't looking for early treatments? Why did so many prominent epidemiologists completely reverse their stated views on lockdowns? They flipped from being largely skeptical of coercive of measures on March 2nd of 2020 to fully embracing the most egregious measures just a few weeks later. Moreover, he says there was clearly a conspiracy emanating from the top to smear scientists who later said that the lockdowns were causing vastly more harm than good. The people behind the Great Barrington Declaration were targeted by government and media for professional ruin. When did the vaccine companies get rolled into the mix and under what terms? We need to know the when and why of the questioning and denial of natural immunity. Who was involved in this egregious and wholly inaccurate attempt to stigmatize those who rejected the vaccine? Where were the trials for generic therapeutics that the NIH is supposed to fund? Why in general did an entire establishment choose panic, lockdown, and mandate over calm and the traditional practice of public health? And he says, I have my own questions. What were the conditions and messages that led the New York Times to use its podcasts and printed pages, February 27th and 28th of 2020, to spread absolute panic? This institution had never done anything like this before in any previous pandemic. Why did it choose this path even weeks before Fauci and Burks started lobbying Trump to pull the trigger? To put a fine point on it, how much money was involved? He says, what we need is a full timeline with every detail for two years. We need reparations for the victims. We need to take powers away from hundreds and thousands of leading politicians, scientists, public health officials, and media executives. What changed pandemic panic to a new calm is the force of public opinion. And he says, God bless the protesters, polls, and truckers. This is a great improvement, but there's a long way to go to rekindle the love of liberty that can protect us next time. It's not about left and right. We need a new understanding of public health, bodily autonomy and essential liberties. Some people want global amnesia and otherwise no change in the regime, no follow up, no investigations, no connecting dots, no justice, no answers to burning questions. And he says, consider this. If we are so over COVID, why are people still being fired for not being vaccinated, including people with superior natural immunity? For that matter, why have the fired not been rehired? Why the masks on planes, trains, and buses? Why the continued quarantine rules? Why the restrictions on international travel? Why are children still forced to cover up their faces? Why must everyone who wants to see a Broadway play be forced to cover up their smiles? He says the remnants of restrictions, mandates, and impositions are there to serve as a reminder of the prevailing ruling class attitude toward their policy choices. There are no regrets. They've done everything right and they still have their thumb on you. I know, it it spikes my blood pressure a little bit too, but I think he's right. Got a link to Jeffrey Tucker's article in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So, yeah, I I just got two more quick thoughts here from Jeffrey Tucker from his article from the Brownstone Institute. Forget about COVID, they say. And it's true. The people who put all those unnecessary impositions and oppressions on the rest of us, they, they don't just want us to forgive and forget. They don't care about forgiveness. Just forget it. Forget it. Move on. But don't do anything to limit their ability to do the same exact thing Again, when it's convenient for them. And to this, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, this is intolerable. By all means, forget about COVID and live life as normally as possible in defiance of those who live to foster fear, but never forget the disastrous COVID restrictions that created such destruction. He says, we can't let anyone off the hook, much less pretend that the policy disaster that created billions of personal tragedies never happened. The world we live in today with worse health, economic dislocations, demoralized, undereducated children and youth, segregations and censorships, the unquestioned ubiquity of rules manufactured by the undemocratic administrative state, the instability and fear that comes with no longer trusting the system, that's a far cry from the one that existed just a few years ago. And we need to know why, how, and who. There are millions of questions that cry out for answers and Jeffrey Tucker says we must have them, and we must work to recover, rebuild, and ensure that it will never happen again. And that's the key. That is absolutely the key. Sorry, I you know I'm I'm very passionate about this, and it's not because oh boy, COVID, something COVID. I'm as sick of it as anybody, but I feel like uh, I feel like I'm invested in this too because by some miracle, early on. I recognized that there was more to this than saying, oh, well, we got to do this if we want to keep the public safe. And like a lot of you, it put me at odds with uh, not just, you know, people out there in public. Uh, yeah, I had a few people. Hey, where's your mask? You know, when I'm out shopping or something. But it put me at odds with, with members of my own family. And it's and it's hard when, when people misunderstand or otherwise are like, "What? why are you doing this? And if I can just confess that the hardest thing of all was uh, was the, divide that I saw at church over masks or no masks. And I didn't try to make my church attendance when we did finally get to go back to church. I didn't try to make that something, you know, that was a political statement, okay? I didn't wrap myself in the Ukrainian flag, so to speak, and, you know, march into church. So, look, everybody, look at me. See what a good person I am? I simply would not put on a mask in order to go to church. And it was so clear that it it made people really uncomfortable I mean it was I, I wouldn't go up and you know stand where everybody can see me look at me look at me look at my maskless face I mean I'm, I'm not cruel I'm not trying to inflict that on anybody but I could see you know the, the questioning in their eyes and it wasn't so much of oh he's putting us at risk of COVID it was it was it was even more painful because it was more like oh brother Hyde has lost his way He's 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 headed down the dark path. He's on a on a course for apostasy, and nowhere did I feel that more keenly than um, one time in in going up to the pulpit to 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 briefly speak at church. Uh, again, I I wasn't wearing my mask, and the but I I could see the second I started walking up to the pulpit, all of the local congregation leadership, the whole bishopric, just went, they went blind. It's like it struck them blind. Not one of them saw me. They just, you could see them just stare straight ahead or stare at the floor. I mean, actually, I think a homeless person, you know, providing they were masked, would have made them less uncomfortable, you know, approaching the pulpit. Now, I'm not trying to make myself out as a victim here. I'm just saying it was uncomfortable for them. It's uncomfortable for me. But the worst part to me is it was all unnecessary. Every bit of it. Yet so many people went along. And, and I'm I'm really, honestly, I'm not trying to, to just, you know, lay blame. And people were stupid enough to do that. I don't blame people for being stupid. I think everybody was afraid. I was certainly afraid. I didn't know what to, you know, what is this going to turn out to be? How is this going to be? It was so weird two years ago to be driving around, taking my son to and from work. And, and there's no cars, no cars on the road. And this is in a really highly populated area where... You know, traffic is just the norm, regardless of the time of day. That was spooky. The hard part for me is that so many people were were frightened into giving up the things that matter most, including their personal autonomy. So I bring it up today not to, to you know I was right and <laughs> I just I just happened to recognize that my conscience was saying, Don't do this. This is more than just a measure to protect people, this is a test. At least it felt like a test to see who will bend the knee and who won't. And I don't expect everybody, you know, to march in lockstep on this. But um, as you well know, or you likely know, it's not fun to be the, the odd person who's pushing back. And so it's just, you know, this. The, my my goal here is to persuade you, be skeptical. Be the person who is willing to ask those inconvenient questions. I mean, we've, we live in a time where the, the lines of reality have been blurred. Keeping your grip on reality is really tough. In fact, I was looking at an article from uh, Gary Barnett the other day. This was published on uh, lewrockwell.com. And he starts with a quote from Rumi. And I don't know much about Rumi, R-U-M-I. But I know wisdom when I see it. And this is Wisdom. Quote, you can beat 40 scholars with one fact, but you can't beat one idiot with 40 facts. Gary Barnett says the above simple quote speaks volumes, and this very logical reasoning should provoke thought where little exists, causing closed minds to open in order to seek truth and understanding. Now, when asked how the masses can be convinced to think critically, to act as individuals, to protect their own freedom, to claim their own life and soul as a sovereign, and to declare or to denounce, rather, all attempts of autocratic rule, Gary Barnett says one should refer to the fact that most of humanity voluntarily chooses to behave as slaves in a collective world of idiocy. And he says, in a world such as this, the corrupt Immoral, beastly, and evil among us have an easy time gaining the power and control over others that they naturally seek. This, it seems, is the essence of our modern existence. And he says it's not as if the bulk of humanity is inherently bad. It likely is not. But the many have always been subject to rule by the few. And in this present time, this archetypical phenomenon has reached an epic peak and consumed the minds of all but the very few Now, one might argue that this is the fault of the master class, but that argument would not hold water as voluntary servitude by the majority, whether initiated and promulgated by the powerful or not, can only lead to a society of impotent conformist sheep awaiting slaughter. And he says it's because of this majority attitude that this state of confusion, ignorance, and mass disobedience to illegitimate authority has harmed and consumed all efforts by the few to awaken the spirit of the common man. On one hand, this seems to be the way of the world, but on the other, it seems to be in direct conflict with any individual natural desire to be free. So that indicates that a contradiction is present, and if that's truly so, then some chance of rational thought and an escape from this mass formation psychosis, although slight, should at least be possible. That's not meant as some sort of false hope, but he says all contradiction should be addressed and remedied so as to clarify the confusion, find out what's actual truth and what's de- duplicitous propaganda, and then act on that knowledge. Now, from here, he goes into uh, a broader picture of what's happening. Okay? He's not just talking about COVID, for instance. <clears throat> Gary Barnett says, given the depth and scope of our current situation, the deadly intent of the New World Order cabal and that no clarity among large numbers is yet evident one would have to conclude that the state's efforts to achieve the long-planned Great Reset and take over the planet are well underway and continuing without valid resistance. Worldwide barbarism continues unabated. Unconscious perception has replaced reality. Proxy war has temporarily replaced the fake COVID plot, causing the new fear to replace the old overnight, all without suspicion or question from the submissive proletariat herd. Okay, well, that's what we're about here. This is what wrong think is. It's questioning and being suspicious when someone is telling you, hey, you have to do this or else. It's a very revolutionary thing to say, really? Why?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got some great sponsors who make this program possible, including lifesavingfood.com. And you'll hear me talk about food storage, and it's, it's true. I've been, uh, I've been into self-reliance. Some would call me a prepper. That's not exactly a bad thing in my thinking, but I think it's a very wise idea to be prepared. And I'm very thankful to have a sponsor who makes that his business, helping people get prepared for whatever may be coming. So I would encourage you to please look to your self-reliance, secure your freedom by shopping now while these things are still available. And and Kendall will do his best to save you significant money. For instance, here's the ultimate solar power and cooking emergency food kit, 30% off. Click on the link, learn more about it, lifesavingfood.com. Maybe just drop him a note, tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this program. You know, standing up to conventional wisdom is really, really tough during a time of war propaganda. Scott Ritter is someone who I've, I wish more people would listen to, because the very same hysteria that was used to get people to cheer the invasion of Iraq has returned to America. And Scott addresses this in, a, in an article called Pity the Nation. Now, Scott made a very challenging case that, uh, for, for war against, or the arguments that he made against the war against Iraq. They were effectively silenced. And he sees the very same template in play towards anyone challenging the dogma of Putinism. He starts with a, a poem or a quote from uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation, oh pity the people, who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. Scott Ritter says, In the past few months, the United States has undergone a kind of transformation that one only reads about in history books, from a nation which imperfectly yet stolidly embraced the promise, if not principle, of freedom, especially when it came to that most basic of rights, freedom of expression. He says democracies live and die on the ability of an informed citizenry to engage in open debate, dialogue, and discussion about difficult issues. Freedom of speech is one of the touchstone tenets of American democracy. The idea that no matter how out of step with mainstream society one's beliefs might be, the retained right to freely express opinions thus derived without fear of censorship or repression existed. But he says no more. In the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Russophobia, which had taken grip in the United States since Russia's first Cold War president, Boris Yeltsin, handed the reins of power over to his handpicked successor, Vladimir Putin, has emerged much like the putrid core of an overripe boil. That this anti-Russian trend existed in the United States was in and of itself no secret. Indeed the United States had since 2000 pushed aside classic Russian area studies in the pursuit of new school a new school espousing the doctrine of putinism centered on the flawed notion that everything in Russia revolved around the singular person of Vladimir Putin Ritter says the more the United States struggled with the reality of a Russian nation unwilling to allow itself to be once again constrained by the yoke of carpetbagger economics disguised as democracy that had been prevalent during the Yeltsin era, the more the dogma of Putinism took hold in the very establishments where intellectual examination of complex problems was ostensibly transpiring. The halls of academia, which in turn produced the minds that guided policy formulation and implementation. Now he says, outliers like Jack Matlock and John Mearsheimer and Stephen Cohen were cashiered in favor of a new breed of erstwhile Russian expert, led by the likes of Michael McFaul, Fiona Hill, and Anne Applebaum. Genuine Russian area studies was supplanted by a new field of authoritarian studies, where the soul of a nation that was once defined by the life and works of Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Gorky, Lenin, Stalin, Sakharov, and Gorbachev, was distilled into the shallow caricature of one man, Putin. Now we'd seen this play before, in the build-up to the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq, where the national identity of a people who traced their heritage back to the biblical times of Babylon was encapsulated in the person of one man, Saddam Hussein. And by focusing solely on a manufactured narrative derived from a simplistic understanding of one man, the United States papered over the complex internal reality of the Iraqi nation and its people, and in doing so set itself up for defeat. It was if it was if as if uh, Iraq's long and storied history ceased to exist. Now Scott Ritter says the impact of this erasure of erasure of context and relevance from the national discourse was felt up to the decision to initiate what was by all sense and purposes. An illegal war of aggression, the greatest war crime of all, according to U.S. Supreme Court Justice and U.S. Chief Prosecutor during the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal, Robert H. Jackson. Now, Scott Ritter says my own personal experience serves as witness to this reality. As a former chief weapons inspector in Iraq from 1991 to 1998... I was uniquely positioned to comment on the veracity of the claims made by the United States that Iraq retained weapons of mass destruction capability in violation of its obligation to be disarmed of such. And Scott Ritter says when my stance was deemed convenient to a narrative attacking a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, I was readily embraced. However, when my fact-based narrative ran afoul of the regime change policies of Clinton's successor, George W. Bush, well, he says I was cast aside as a pariah. He says the politics of personal destruction were employed in full. And I was attacked for being a shill of Saddam and perhaps worst of all for someone who served his nation proudly and honorably as an officer of U.S. Marines, anti-American. It didn't matter that without exception, the fact-based arguments I made challenging the case for war with Iraq proved to be accurate. At the time and place where the arguments could have and should have resonated greatest, like during the buildup to the invasion, that his voice had been effectively silenced. And he says, I see the very same template in play again today when it comes to the difficult topic of Russia. Like every issue of importance, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has two sides to its story. The humanitarian tragedy that has befallen the citizens of Ukraine is perhaps the greatest argument one can offer up in opposition to the Russian military incursion. But was there surely a viable diplomatic off-ramp available which could have avoided this, this horrific situation? Ritter says to examine that question, one must be willing and able to engage in a fact-based discussion of Russian motives. And the main problem with this approach is that the narrative which would emerge is not convenient for those who espouse the Western dogma of Putinism, based as it is on the irrational proclivities and geological appetite of one man, Vladimir Putin. Scott Ritter says the issue of NATO expansion and the threat it posed to Russian national security is dismissed with the throwaway notion that NATO's a defensive alliance and as such could pose no heart or no threat rather to Russia or its leader. The issue of the presence of the cancer of neo-Nazi ideology in the heart of the Ukrainian government and national identity is countered with the fact that Ukraine's current president is himself a Jew. The eight-year suffering of the Russian-speaking citizens of the Donbass who lived and died under incessant bombardment brought on by the Ukrainian military is simply ignored as if it never happened. Now, Scott Ritter says the problem with the pro-Ukrainian narrative is that it's at best incomplete and at worst incredibly misleading. NATO expansion has been consistently identified by Russia as an existential threat. The domination of the hate-filled neo-Nazi ideology of the Ukrainian far-right is well-documented, up to and including their threat to kill the incumbent president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, if he did not do their bidding. And the fact that the former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, promised to make the Russian-speaking population of the Donbass cower in the basements under the weight of Ukrainian artillery fire is well-documented. But unfortunately for those seeking to have an informed fact based discussion, dialogue and debate about the complex problem that is Ukraine Russian relations is the reality that facts are not conducive to the advancement of the Putinism dogma that has gripped American academia, government and mainstream media today. He says the Saddam era tactics of smearing the character of anyone who dares challenge what passes for conventional wisdom when it comes to Russia and its leader is alive and well and living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. The age-old tactic of boycotting such voices by the mainstream media is in full swing. The so-called news channels are flooded under with the acolytes of Putinism, while anyone who dares challenge the officially sanctioned narrative of Ukraine good, Russia bad, is excluded from participating in the discussion. Now, there's a lot more to this, which I will not have time, but, time to share, but uh, Scott Ritter says there's never been a time when a national discussion has been more essential to the continued survival of the American people and all humanity. If this discussion could occur armed with the full range of facts and opinions relating to Russia, well, there might be hope that reason would prevail, and all nations would walk away from the abyss of our collective suicide. Unfortunately, he says, the American experiment in democracy is not conducive for such near-term embrace of sanity and reason. Pity the nation, Ferlinghetti wrote, whose leaders are liars whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity America. I'll have a link to Scott Ritter's story in the show notes. You can check him out at thebryanhideshow.com. Please stay with us. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is
1: The Brian Hyde Show. Just like that, we are back. Again, I want to thank you for being part of this growing audience of wrong thinkers. I'm guessing that at some level you have had to uh, stick your neck out, maybe appear a little bit out of step with the rest of the people around you. And hopefully you find some comfort and a little bit of encouragement in the idea that, hey, maybe I'm not so alone. Maybe there are more people who feel this way, Just uh, they just don't know how to speak up or they don't dare speak up because uh, they don't want to get hammered down. Well, my skin is thick after many years of doing this. Uh, I, I know, it, it. look, it sucks when people are, are calling you names or, you know, impugning your motives and, you know, saying bad things about you. But one of the most liberating things that you can do is to do your own homework, to really get to know yourself and what you stand for, and thereby gain confidence that you can hold a worldview, and it's okay. If the rest of the world doesn't see things your way, it doesn't mean that you're smarter than everybody else and everybody else is an idiot. It just means that uh, you have been willing to pay a price that maybe a lot of other people are not willing to pay at this point. And what they think of you, that's none of your business. I like to put it this way, you know, when people start to criticize, it's like, okay, somebody has leveled a criticism or someone has left a nasty comment or sent me, you know, a message saying, you are a communist sympathizer, or you're a Putin stooge or something like that. The first thing I ask myself is, okay, do I know this person? Is this a person I would be willing to take advice from? And if the answer is no, then I can safely ignore what they're saying. Now, that doesn't mean I'm always right. It just means if I wouldn't trust them to give me advice, I'm not going to trust them to give me criticism either. Especially if their criticism is simply based in a, ha, gotcha, you know, kind of mentality. I don't know, some people thrive on it, but uh, it's amazing how empowering it is to to tell them, no, you go ahead and you push all the buttons you want. Eventually you're going to figure out those buttons aren't connected to anything. In the meantime, you are free to continue to learn, to grow, and hopefully to speak the truth As best you can. We need more people who are willing to shine a light into the darkness. And it doesn't have to be in big ways. It can be in small ways. It still makes a huge difference. All right, let's talk about something that we're all feeling right now. That that sense of uneasiness, maybe a little sickness in the pit of your stomach every time you look at gas prices. My wife and I were having this conversation yesterday. Gas prices had gone up twice just yesterday. About 20 cents each time. It's uh, yeah, it's getting a little bit uneasy. And the crazy thing is the unprecedented gas prices that we're paying are not the result of Russian aggression. Although I notice the White House is kind of in full spin mode. Oh, yeah, we can't do anything about it. It's, it's all Putin's fault. <laughs> well, as the editorial board at Issues and Insights makes clear, the high gas prices we're paying are the result of crude hypocrisy and the rot of green politics. They say what, that gasoline prices are becoming affordable to many Americans is becoming old news. What got us here, though, is a story unheard by much of the public, and it starts and ends with green politics. As gasoline reaches prices that made it a luxury good during President Joe Biden's year in office, the White House is considering asking the Saudis to produce more oil. At the same time, the administration apparently wants more oil from Venezuela, which is languishing under a dictatorship that's squarely aligned with Russian President Vladimir Putin and Iran, a member in good standing with the axis of evil. Joe Biden is frantically searching the globe to see if anyone but Texas might have some spare oil, says a tweet from Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA officer and Oregon Democrat, that sums up well the comic blundering as well as the corrupt decision-making of the current White House. Under Donald Trump's presidency, the U.S. became a net total energy exporter in 2019 for the first time since 1952, a position maintained in 2020, says the U.S. Energy Information Administration. That was a historic moment. In 2020, the U.S. also exported more petroleum than it imported, marking the first time that's happened, said the Daily Energy Insider. But in 2022, the U.S. petroleum trade is expected to shift toward net Imports. Now, it's easy to blame Biden because he is at fault. The president, this president, has shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, which would have carried 830,000 barrels of crude each day from Alberta to the American heartland, proposed to permanently ban offshore oil uh, drilling off Florida's coastline and suspended or delayed new federal gas and oil leasing. The policies have contributed to higher prices over the last year because oil companies, as in any any industry would, price in expected future-tight supplies to avoid shortages. So it didn't have to happen this way. The resources are still available. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, a member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, last Sunday on Meet the Press said, we have the energy, we have the resources here, and we have the technology. We're a million barrels short a day right now that we could just ramp up like that. We can do certain things. But green politics, and end quote, by the way, but green politics won't allow the U.S. to take advantage of its bounty of crude and natural gas. Now, oddly, though, the environmentalists who hold energy policy hostage when Democrats are in power have no problem with this country importing oil from nations where the drilling and transportation processes are dirtier than they are in the U.S., and the regimes are not democratically elected. This is the California model. Officials and activists rush to create an all-renewables electricity grid that forced the state to import energy from producers in Arizona, Baja California, Colorado, Mexico, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, and Utah that rely on natural gas, nuclear energy, and coal. Three sources that California wants to eliminate from its portfolio. But this is acceptable because it's happening somewhere else outside the view sheds of the wealthy enclaves on the coast. And it's the same with the mining of natural resources that are needed to build batteries for electric cars, cell phones, and other modern conveniences. The political left is happy to use these terms as long as the extraction for the material used in their manufacture is done away from their myopic gazes in countries where environmental protections hardly exist. So the Issues and Insights editorial board says, yes, this not-in-my-backyard attitude is hypocritical. But worse than that, it produces poor public policy. We hope someday a majority of voters consistently figures this out in election after election. So it kind of leaves us in an interesting place, doesn't it? And, and I keep hearing the word transition. We've got to transition to clean energy. Transition, transition. I don't know what the timeline is like here. But if I could just put the cards on the table, I'm not buying a damn electric car. I'm not interested in buying an electric car. Now, my friend, Connor Boyack, took me for a a drive in his Tesla. And I got to admit, that's a pretty impressive car. The acceleration itself was enough to put a smile on my face that took a few hours to go away. That was very impressive. It was impressive to watch that car drive itself in heavy Wasatch Front traffic. I was like, man, this is really something. That is, the technology involved is is really amazing. However, I'm not going to be forced into buying a more expensive vehicle and and conveniently ignoring, as as the editorial board from Issues and Insights points out, that there's an awful lot of energy expended and a whole lot of pollution and you know damage done to the environment just to to get the minerals and the, the materials needed to make those batteries. By the way, I'm not trying to rain on your parade if you like electric cars, if you drive a Tesla. I think that's that's wonderful. But I'm not going to be forced into one the same way I wasn't going to be forced into taking a jab that I didn't want either. So if I'm a bad person for driving around in my big gas guzzling V8, you know, um, so be it. The problem is I'm looking beyond just my... my discomfort when i have to go you know top off uh, you know the the gas tank in in my four wheel drive i it's it's painful but i'm looking around trying to see the bigger picture and the bigger picture i'm seeing is everybody everybody especially the poorest among us are the ones who are really feeling the effects of these high fuel prices not because they're having trouble you know v- you know gassing up their land rovers it's because the cost of every item they buy, every bit of food, every piece of clothing, every, uh, you know, package of napkins, whatever it may be, goes up in relation to the cost of fuel. You know, for my listeners in the St. George area, you're probably, uh, you're fast approaching the time where it's going to start getting hot, right? It's, it's March, let's see, those 100 degree temperatures can't be too far off. So you're going to see a lot of people having service calls on their heating and, and uh, air conditioning systems. If you have a plumber come out, how long before we start seeing uh, a fuel service charge added every time, you know, some some uh, repairman has to come and, and fix something at your house? I know people say, well, the businesses ought to be the ones to eat that. they got the money to do it. But let's face it, in the end, the cost is always going to be passed on to the consumer. That's This is just how basic economics work. So those rising gas prices, oh goody, they may be forcing us to think more about this transition to clean energy. But they're doing so by having a very pronounced effect on people's lives and livelihoods and making it harder for even the poorest among us to make ends meet. Something ain't right about this. (laughs) And I'm not going to go quietly into that good night.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is a gathering place where independent thinkers can enjoy independent thought, independent commentary, and not feel judged for, uh, you know, considering a point of view that falls outside of that little three-by-five index card of approved opinion that we're supposed to stick to. I don't know. I'm, I just, I take it as a great, uh, I take it as a, a really, uh, a great thing to do to be able to to push back against the prevailing narratives because I'm not going to be told what to think. I'm not going to be told, this is what you have to do. If you can persuade me, I would say, please, by all means, seek to persuade me. But I understand my rights as a free individual. I understand what my natural rights are. I understand how those rights limit government's power over me. And for those of you who are waiting for me to, to bend the knee, I hope you're patient. hope you brought comfortable shoes because <laughs> it's going to be a while. So, you know, make yourself comfortable. My program is brought to you by great sponsors who keep me on the air by allowing me to do my work without worrying about the wolves howling outside my door, and they include wonderful sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, Modicello College dot org, sewing and quilting dot com, and also HSL ammo dot com. Actually, I'll tell you what, if you've uh, you've been thinking about putting a little uh Putting a little money aside or converting some of your money in the bank into something more tangible. Do not overlook the precious metals of gold, copper, I'm sorry, gold, silver, yes, but also copper, lead, and brass. That uh, last three, Spencer at HSL Ammo can help you out with that. <laughs> it's, it holds its value well. It stores indefinitely. It's, uh, it's uh, fungible. You can you can break it down into, okay. I'll pay you two cartridges for that tank of gas or whatever the case may be. I don't know. Let's talk environmental things here for just a moment. As your standard of living is declining, do not forget that this has been the goal of Western environmentalists for some time now. And, you know, all the trouble that the Bundy family was having, you know, a few years ago with the federal government at the root of those problems were radical environmentalists. Who found their way into the, the departments of, you know, for instance, the Department of the Interior and um, the, the, the BLM. We're talking uh, hardcore environmentalists who believe grazing cattle on the land is the worst thing that can possibly happen. Yes, out in the desert, you know, out south and, and west of, of Mesquite. It's, yes, uh, it was once a lush tropical green forest, ra- green rainforest, uh, uh, but now the well, cattle have turned it into nothing more than rocks and sagebrush. All right, maybe that's a bit of an examine, exaggeration here, but uh, it was funny to see how many environmental organizations showed up at the Bundy's trial a few years ago. And they weren't showing up in a uh, positive and supportive sense. They were there to see the Bundy's get theirs. There were some pretty long faces <laughs> when, when somehow the Bundy family was delivered from uh, theirs and the uh, federal government's predations. i got a great article here from Dennis Prager connecting the dots on how environmentalists are creating a social revolution, just like their counter, their uh, communist counterparts created a social revolution. Dennis Prager says for more than 40 years, the environmentalist movement has been warning that global warming is the result of mankind's burning of fossil fuels and poses an existential threat to human and other biological life. Now he says, this is one of the many grandiose lies the left uses to reshape, if not destroy Western civilization. Other grandiose lies used to achieve that result include America being systemically racist, that violent crime is the result of racism and poverty, that men give birth, sex and gender are non-binary, and that uh, former President Donald Trump was a Russian asset. He says it should now be obvious that the Greens, the environmentalist movement, not global warming, poses an existential threat to humanity. For the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, the world faces the possibility of a nuclear war. Russia is explicitly threatening use of nuclear weapons should the West come to the defense of Ukraine and has put its military on nuclear alert. Now, Given the possibility that Russian President Vladimir Putin is deranged, the threat is far more real than it was in 1962 when Nikita Khrushchev was the leader of the Soviet Union. Putin believes he embodies Russia just as Hitler believed he embodied Germany. Khrushchev did not believe he embodied Russia. Now, Dennis Prager says, were it not for the Green Movement, Putin would not have been confident that he could get away with invading Ukraine. During Trump's presidency and due to his policies, the United States became independent of foreign oil for the first time. Within months of assuming power, the Democratic Party, an extension of the environmentalist movement, forced America to revert to dependence on foreign oil, including Russian oil. Beholding to the environmentalists, candidate Joe Biden made promise after promise to curtail oil and gas production, no new fracking on government land, no drilling in the Alaskan Arctic and shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. Putin got the message. So thanks to environmentalists, not only is America once again dependent on foreign oil, Germany is dependent on Russian oil. Angela Merkel, another in a long line of foolish Germans, even shut down Germany's nuclear reactor, which the Greens in Germany applauded. They applauded it, despite the fact that nuclear energy is the only viable non-carbon energy that can sustain a country. Because the environmentalist movement is not nearly as interested in the environment as it is in restructuring society. The environmentalist movement is as interested in protecting the environment as the communist movement was in protecting workers, or the defund the police movement is in protecting blacks. Now, the Democrats came into power in 2021, The average closing price of oil in 2020 was $39.68 a barrel. The closing price of oil in 2019 was $56.99 a barrel. As of this writing, he says it's $138 a barrel. The extremely high price of energy, a direct result of the environmentalist policies of the Democratic Party and the liberal and left parties in Europe, is one of the two primary reasons for the ever-increasing rate of inflation. The other reason is the result of another Democratic Party policy that is the printing of trillions of dollars. Now, Prager says serious inflation leads to very bad things. The Nazis did not come to power because of their anti-Semitism or even because of the Versailles Treaty as much as they did because of the terrible inflation under the Weimar Republic. And any day now, the Biden administration will announce an, an agreement with Iran that will enable Iran to take in billions of dollars for its oil. Yet another victory for Biden, the Democrats, and the environmentalists. This agreement, brokered incredibly by Russian diplomats, will enable Iran to sponsor worldwide terror, resuscitate Iran's economy, and continue its quest for nuclear bombs. But none of this matters to Biden, the Democratic Party, the New York Times, or any other left-wing institution. So strong is the grip of the the environmentalist cult, and so influential are the uber-wealthy environmentalists who support the left... They would rather see Ukraine destroyed, the potential for nuclear war, and the decimation of the world economy than allow fracking, drilling, or even an oil pipeline between Canada and the United States. Dennis Prager says, Concern for the environment's a good thing, but the environmentalist movement is not. Environmentalists use the environment to create a social revolution, just as communists and workers, or used workers, rather, to create a social revolution. Its activists are fanatics... Its consequences are nihilism. Environmentalists are intentionally or not in collusion with Putin to undermine America and the West. Now, that may seem like a pretty harsh thing to say, but I don't think he's entirely wrong here. I don't think he's, he's off base. Here's an example of why I think that's the case. Um, when, when the Bundys were uh, freed let let go from being held in prison for nearly two years while their trial uh, proceedings dragged on or while the preparation for their trial dragged on, you know, it was, it was an amazing thing to be there as those charges were dismissed and as the superseding indictment was dismissed with prejudice, meaning they could not be tried again for those same charges. And it was just a short time after that, maybe, a, maybe a year or so later that, uh, Ammon Bundy was invited rather, to come and speak at an event taking place in Modesto, California. Now, this was a an event involving farmers and other food producers, ranchers, and so forth from all over the country. And what was most fascinating was there was a pretty large group of very loud, very vocal environmentalists who showed up with a bullhorn and were protesting outside and just going nuts. How dare Ammon Bundy be here? I think their their main beef with him was the fact that, uh, you know, they expected to see him crushed and his family crushed because they had defied the environmental crowd that had tried so hard using the Bureau of Land Management to, to, to bring them to heel. I mean, there there is a certain communist fanaticism that seems to run throughout the environmentalist movement. I don't know, you know, what... Uh, what the future holds for them, but I think they're content with uh, let's upend the world, let's uh, let's break everything that is and hope a new order emerges from it. And climate change is the, the primary stick that we're being beaten with now that uh, they've discovered COVID isn't working anymore. So get ready. A climate emergency is waiting in the wings. If you think the gas prices are bad now, wait till this emergency gets into full swing. It's going to be fun.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, I'm just going to hazard a guess you might be looking for a home. Or at least someplace to to rest your weary head. Well, when the time comes at your home shopping, you'll notice, first of all, that it's a very competitive real estate market. Lots of people all competing for those homes. Cash offers. I'll pay you this much more above the asking price if you just sell it to me. Here's what that means to you. You've got to have your financing squared away. You've got to be able to get the loan you need as quickly as possible. This is where I want to recommend the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, I've got a link in the show notes where you can email Heather directly. If you'd like to call her, 435-703-4522 is the number. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can trust Heather. Decades of experience. She is is one of the best of the best in a very competitive business. And she is there to help you find the financing you need and get it done quickly, because time counts. Well, you know, U.S. foreign policy has been pretty questionable for some time. <clears throat> I can't remember when I really started to doubt. I'm guessing it was the run-up to the Iraq war, the second one, that really made me start to question, hey, are we sure we're the good guys? Uh, because I've had deep doubts ever since. And this is not, uh, you know, are you, are you impugning the reputations of our men and women in uniform? I think that uh, most of them have entered the service with, uh, with the best of intentions. But the policymakers, the ones who make the decisions to send them hither, thither, and yon, I don't trust them. I think they are about as corrupt a cabal of people as you're likely to encounter. And I got an article here from James Bovard warning that the current crop of Washington foreign policy experts could get us all killed with their hubris. He says, in the decades since John F. Kennedy's uh, inauguration, foreign policy experts have become Washington's leading con men. Even though whiz kids and dream teams have dragged America into one bloodbath and debacle after another, politicians in the media still kowtow to the best and brightest. Derek Labert's Magic and Mayhem book seeks to explain how such experts get power and why their influence is so pernicious. Now, Liebert, a Georgetown University professor, derides the influence of magical thinking in foreign policy saying shrewd, level-headed people are so frequently bewitched into substituting passion, sloganeering, and haste for reflection, homework, and reasonable objectives, end quote. Bovard says regardless of policymakers' Ivy League pedigrees, U.S. foreign and defense policy routinely operates on a village idiot level of information. Lee Barrett notes that FDR remarked that most of what he knew about the world came from his stamp collection. Perhaps some charming old Russian stamps filled Roosevelt with his affection for Uncle Joe. Similarly, Leibhardt observes Paul Bremer, chief of Iraq's coalition provisional authority, admitted in his memoirs that he didn't know anything about Iraq when stepping down from Kissinger Associates to become America's proconsul. Adam Garfinkel, who worked as a speechwriter for Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, said in 2007, no one in a senior position in this administration seems to have the vaguest notion of modern Middle Eastern history. Now, Bovard says the Pentagon matches the White House and State Department bonehead for bonehead. The U.S. military floundered in Iraq and Afghanistan because, as Liebart writes, the Army not only forgot everything it had been bloodily taught about counterinsurgency in Vietnam, but in Vietnam it had forgot everything it had learned about counterinsurgency in Korea as well. He says cluelessness is perhaps the greatest constant in our foreign policy. In 1967, the Pentagon ordered top experts to analyze where the Vietnam War had gone wrong. The resulting study contained 47 volumes of material exposing the follies that had, at that point, already left tens of thousands of Americans dead. After the study was finished, it was distributed to the key Johnson administration players and federal agencies where it was completely ignored, if not forgotten. New York Times editor Tom Wicker commented that the people who read these documents in the Times in 1971, were the first to study them. Daniel Ellsberg, who wrote a portion of the papers and leaked them to the newspaper, noted that the documents reveal a general failure to study history or to analyze or even to record operational experience, especially mistakes. Above all, effective pressures for optimistically false reporting at every level, for describing progress rather than problems or failure, concealed the very need for change in approach or for learning, end quote. So James Bovard says the political system that routinely buries information that undermines power grabs and war is the biggest power grab of them all. Now, he says neoconservatives who had Bush's ear encouraged the president to believe he was making his decisions by gut. But as Liebart says, to be a gut player, as he called himself, rarely enables one to digest information that gives stomach aches. Leibart deftly demolishes Henry Kissinger's record and reputation. Kissinger, like other emergency men, sometimes showed boundless condescension towards the American public. He warned Nixon that withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam will become like salted peanuts to the American public. The more U.S. troops come home, the more will be demanded. Indeed, Kissinger was even colder than he appears in Leibart's discussion. According to a December 21, 1970 entry in the diary of Nixon Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman, Kissinger told me he does not favor Nixon's peace plan. He thinks that any pullout next year would be a serious mistake because the adverse reaction to it could set in well before the 72 elections. He favors instead a continued winding down and then a pullout right at the fall of 72 so that if any bad results follow, they'll be too late to affect the election. Now, James Bovard says Magic and Mayhem's discussion of the Korean War is one of the book's strongest suits. The Pentagon had plenty of warning that the Chinese would intervene if the U.S. Army pushed too close to the Chinese border. But the euphoria that erupted after MacArthur's Incheon landing blew away all common sense and drowned out the military voices who warned of a catastrophe. Though the Chinese attack resulted in the longest retreat in the history of America's armed forces, and though the Korean War was more unpopular than the Vietnam War ever was... Intellectuals and foreign policy experts succeeded in redefining the Korean conflict as an American victory. Liebert notes, a magician's wand has swept away the extent that the war turned out to be a hideously taxing minimization of disaster. It took almost two years to establish our lines securely where they had been a month after Incheon. Spinning the Korean War paved the way for the escalation in Vietnam. <clears throat> now, Bovard says... Leibhardt is at no risk of receiving one of the agency seal medals that the CIA bestows on people, especially congressmen who serve the agency's interests. The CIA has long embodied the insular, turf-obsessed office culture of a savings bank in Buffalo, he writes. The CIA has been excellent at keeping all accountability at arm's length, which virtually guarantees poor thinking. Now, that spy agency has failed America more than politicians or CIA-fed journalists admit Prior to 9-11, the CIA's map library possessed maps of the caves, tunnels, and dugouts that bin Laden had helped to engineer at Tora Bora long before. Passed on 15 years earlier by the Afghan guerrillas, America was then backing. But by the time the U.S. began its own Afghan campaign in 2001, agency staffers forgot that they had possessed this key to al-Qaeda's hideouts. The torture scandals of the Bush years resulted in part from the CIA's reliance on self-proclaimed experts who knew almost nothing of interrogation. Magic and Mayhem urges the appointment of a truth commission to get to the bottom of the post-9-11 torture regime. Now, unfortunately, the Obama administration chose to put its muscle on keeping the lid on the outrages. Naturally, the foreign policy wise men cheer up his cover cheer his cover-up decision. But as Churchill declared, the purpose of recriminating about the past is to enforce action in the future. Obama is helping to create a war crimes get out of jail free card he might need himself someday. Just skipping ahead here to the end. Um, you know, there's much more to this article. I'd like you to read it for yourself. It's linked at thebryanhideshow.com. James Bovard says even if Americans properly discount the pretensions of the next deluge of foreign policy sages, it's unlikely the government will begin learning from its mistakes. In fact, he says the only surefire way to avoid past follies is to vastly reduce U.S. interventions abroad. Now, the second best solution is to somehow assure that it will be the pro-war experts, congressmen, and political appointees whose blood is shed in the conflicts they start. That's pragmatic, but I, I don't disagree. Kudos to James Bovard for another excellent commentary. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is
1: The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I think one of the toughest things that you and I face on a daily basis is knowing who or what to believe. And, you know, here's the thing. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. You don't have to understand it all. All right? I mean, it's good to know what's going on in the world. And I like to have at least, you know, somewhat of a grasp of what's going on. But... how can I put this nicely? I guess there is no nice way to put this. You want to know the truth of the matter? You can't know it all. Now that doesn't mean that you have to wander around permanently in a state of indecision. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. But you have to learn to focus on what is actually within, you know, your influence and what isn't. And right now there's a ton of people. And unfortunately, this includes me from time to time too. We obsess over things that just (laughs) they're out of our control. And what's worse is there's a lot of the things that we obsess over that uh, that are not even being portrayed in a truthful manner to us. One of the biggest favors you can do yourself is to become propaganda proof. Now this can take a number of different forms but and it requires daily sustained effort. It's it's very much like exercising, okay? If you, if you don't exercise, your muscles will atrophy, you know, and you will, you'll become weaker. The same is true for your mind. And I've actually written about this before. Maybe if I, in, a, in a future show, I'll, I'll revisit the how to propaganda proof yourself. But it starts with questioning what is being told to you. I actually have a great article here from Hannah Cox writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. The Theater of War... Seeing through the Ukraine Russia propaganda. She says, unlike previous wars, the conflict in Ukraine is playing out on social media, and that's both an opportunity as well as a danger. She starts with a quote from George Washington: "My first wish is to see this plague of mankind banished from the earth." That was George Washington writing about war in a letter back in nineteen or, sorry seventeen eighty five. And unfortunately, 200-plus years later, we have yet to see this wish that so many have fervently joined him in come to pass. Hannah Cox writes, war is a gruesome, banal, horrific event. Its realities are so traumatizing and inhumane, it boggles the mind that men and women continue to sign up to participate in it. But as Ron Paul recently put it, the American people have good anti-war instincts. Regrettably, the war propagandists always work to grind them away. Now, these propagandists have certainly been working overtime in recent weeks as the world has watched Russia invade Ukraine and the resulting humanitarian crisis unfold. She says, unlike previous wars, this one is playing out on social media. You can literally watch videos of people in the field on TikTok and Twitter. And being able to watch war play out up close and in person is having an impact on many American people, but not necessarily in the way one might hope. She says, while polls show the vast majority of Americans, and especially veterans and military members, are opposed to intervention. Videos of Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky staying to fight for his country have galvanized popular support for the previously lesser-known leader. TikTok in particular is filled with videos thirst-trapping for Zelensky. You think women just found their new favorite boy band leader? By the way, she lists some really great examples of this in her article. But that isn't the only place he's being lionized. Twitter is also filled with stories of his bravery and his famous quote, I don't need a ride, I need ammo. Now, in a stroke of irony, Russia, historically renowned for its mastery of propaganda, appeared to realize it's losing the information war. As of last week, the Kremlin banned Facebook and Twitter and is implementing a crackdown on media outlets that tell the truth about the country's actions. Well, I'm glad we have the moral high ground here in America where nothing like that would ever... Happen. What? Uh, I can't say that? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but we're not, we're not standing on the moral high ground for this either. I think Caitlin Johnstone said it best when she says, look, if they were telling you the truth about Russia, they wouldn't have to shut down any conversation. They wouldn't have to censor to make sure that you don't have anything else to consider, just, just what we're telling you. Back to Hannah Cox's article. Why it matters. She says, let's be clear about a few things here. This is all spin. We may be dealing with war, but there is still a political PR machine whizzing away in the midst of all these stories. And the dramatization of events, the images you're seeing, they have an impact on people. Stories have the ability to pull heartstrings, which in turn can sway the way the public feels about our foreign policy. So she says, let's make sure we're on the same page about a few things here. She starts with, Putin is a vile leader with no respect for human life, but does that make Zelensky the good guy? No. Let's not forget, this man is also conscripting his people to fight for him. On top of that, his record on free speech and press freedoms is also notoriously bad, so we can condemn one without lionizing the other. Hannah Cox says, frankly, these videos and social media fawning are, well, weird. Can you imagine looking back on World War II and seeing videos of women lusting after Churchill or Stalin? It'll be an odd bit of anthropology to look back on decades down the road. And she says, let's remember, though, that the people who control the narrative often control the outcomes. In the 1960s, during the Vietnam War, many anti-war advocates hoped that the imagery of war on TV screens would be a game-changer. Their theory was that bringing the horror of the battlefields into the living rooms of Americans would stir people against the war. And while the topic is still debated, there's reason to think that it did. So, too, is there reason to think that the imagery of war currently playing out on social media may influence this conflict. But Americans need to be on guard against the propagandists who are already seeking to use these images to stir up support for intervention instead of support for an anti-war position. Senator Lindsey Graham doubled down Friday on his call for the Russian people to assassinate or overthrow Russian President Vladimir Putin, even after a backlash from peers in Congress, as well as from Russian officials. That's from the Wall Street Journal. Gary Kasparov says, we are witnessing, literally watching live, Putin commit genocide on an industrial scale in Ukraine, while the most powerful military alliance in history stands aside. It is impossible not to be emotional, but let us also be rational and focus our rage on the facts. Now, Hannah Cox writes, Albert Einstein once said nothing will end war unless the people themselves refuse to go to war. That won't ever happen unless the people become wise enough to see through the theater and propaganda of war. Watching war play out is atrocious, but nothing is ever solved by sending more people into battle. As it is, the majority of people fighting in Russia and Ukraine have no understanding why they're there. They're conscripted, emotionally manipulated, spurred to hatred by lies. They fight for political reasons that matter little to anyone but the oligarchs that rule them. As James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, Federalist Papers 10, so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. End quote. So watching injustice play out, she says, specifically the injustice of war rightfully causes emotions to run high. But we must be on guard against the theater of war and the narrative that sending more people into battle will protect human lives. It won't. Let me give you a quick example here, too, of uh, propaganda. This is uh, from, uh, I believe this is from uh, Glenn Greenwald's latest substat column. Listen to Marco Rubio questioning the uh, under Secretary of State Victoria Newland about Ukrainian biological laboratories. Check this out. Well, um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you um, Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now
0: quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to
1: uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda to wow. blame on the other guy, what they're planning to do themselves. He didn't expect her to tell the truth. He didn't expect her to say that, uh, yeah, there there are uh, biological research facilities there. Uh, and, and it stunned him. And so he had to try to steer the narrative back on track. Well, but but if anything did happen, it would it'd be the Russians, right? Oh, yes, Senator. Yes, yes. I mean, look, I'm not saying that uh, Marco Rubio is, is, you know, a, a dupe. But it's very clear that there's there's a particular narrative that needs to be maintained here. And uh, he was not ready for this uh, undersecretary to uh, to say something that was truthful. She probably did it uh, on accident. We'll be talking more about Glenn Greenwald's uh, Substack column in an upcoming edition of the show. But uh, the bottom line here is stay se- Stay skeptical, my friend. <laughs> Do not believe everything you hear. Because the propaganda is flying thick right now.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is
1: The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by sewingandquiltingcenter.com I don't know if you have seen what what is capable or what these uh, new machines are capable of Long arm quilting machines Do you remember when women used to get together I don't know maybe some guys did it too Some guys may have nimble enough fingers they could sit there and sew quilts and chat with the ladies for hours about what was going on but you can do such remarkable work and the, the technology of sewing has just come so far and I only tell you this because there's a great interest in this. this. is, If you're not a person who, who has, you know, sewing implements in your home, you probably don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, I'm lucky enough, I have a wife who sews. And uh, we, don't, uh, we don't manufacture our own clothes, but man, when, when something needs to be repaired, she can do it. And Sewing and Quilting Center not only sells the machines, they service the machines. They will teach you how to use your machines. Those classes are free of charge, by the way. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a huge... Bonus right there! What value they're adding? Click on the link I provide in my show notes at the dot com, or better still, if you're in St George, Utah, stop in and visit sewingandquiltingcenter.com. dot com. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the owners. They are wonderful people. They are there to help you. They have all the supplies, everything you need to make it happen. Something tells me it might be important. It might be important at some point to actually know how to fix and maintain your clothes. You know, just on the off chance that things suddenly got inexplicably expensive for some odd reason. Ah, let's just go ahead and segue into that. Hey, if you consider the uh, the Great Reset just another conspiracy theory, it might be time to sit down and have a slice of humble pie and open your eyes wide. Got a, car, uh, a column here from Janet Levy, which uh, describes how this reset is not just aimed at capitalism. It's aimed at uh, the free market, it's aimed at the Constitution, it's aimed at the individual. She says, The World Economic Forum is promoting a dystopian vision, and it's closer than you think. By 2030, it says you will own nothing, and you'll be happy. Ownership and control will be vested in a handful of government leaders and a cabal of the wealthiest individuals in the world. You will lose more than just your possessions. Under the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, individual freedom, personal responsibility, and opportunities for growth and self-fulfillment will be eroded away. Democracy, the free market, and national sovereignty will be replaced by a new world order, stakeholder capitalism, and centralized control by some non-governmental organizations, global corporations, and globalist corporations, rather, and the elite. Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum's founder and executive chairman, gloated over the pandemic. To him, it was a window of opportunity for this reset. By the way, that's his words, window of opportunity. And she links to where he he says this. Among the major components of the Great Reset, according to the World Economic Forum, are working toward the creation of a stakeholder economy as opposed to a shareholder economy, Leveraging investments to achieve social goals of equality and sustainability translated into policy and action, the Great Reset is being ushered in directly through global private-public partnerships and environment, social justice, and good governance, or ESG, investing. Indirectly, modern monetary theory is contributing to its ultimate goal of bringing about the economic ruin and chaos necessary for the advent of this new world order. An analysis of this three-pronged attack will reveal the dangerous course on which the World Economic Forum-driven agenda is inexorably taking the world. Now, GPPP comprises a worldwide network of stakeholder capitalists, NGOs, central banks, think tanks, and government partners, a rules-based system taking directions from the UN, the IMF, the World Health Organization, and similar entities. The network aims to control economic activity through systemic interventions that compel companies to behave like governments beholden to their constituencies instead of pursuing profit and producing products that consumers want. Under the patina of social responsibility and sustainability, this woke refashioning shifts corporate focus from shareholders to stakeholders, that is, workers, customers, and the community. Essentially, it's a threat to private property and individual freedom, subordinating owners' interests to that of non-owners. A prime example of GPPP played out during the pandemic. Big Pharma, Pfizer, Moderna, and others had received decades of foundational government funding for vaccine research. Now, they also had obtained liability waivers. During Operation Warp Speed, the funding was accelerated. Over $18 billion in taxpayer dollars was invested in six potential vaccines. Government promotion of vaccines as the only solution and mandates requiring citizens to take multiple shots augmented the pharma giant's profits. Medical opinion that opposed vaccination, promoted other effective treatments, and questioned if the pandemic was engineered were suppressed. Now, the free market encourages businesses to research what products and services consumers want, work out how to create them profitably, employ qualified workers, and focus on return on investment. But stakeholder capitalism is based on a central planning model that determines how corporations must operate and what they can produce. That definitely sounds like socialism, all right. Central planning. We, have Someone here at the top will make the decisions for everybody. Now, companies are scored for E, impact on environment and usage of energy, water, and land, for S, that's how woke, that is anti-white, anti-police, or pro-LGBTQ, etc., they are, and for G, how many women and minorities they employ on the composition, rather, the composition of their boards. Annual reports have jettisoned analysis of financial health in favor of displaying high ESG scores. Now, examples abound of nods to ESG and corporate ads, donations, and political activism. Now, that could be dismissed as virtue signaling, but business decisions, too, are now driven by ESG. Campus-indoctrinated leftists in suits are increasingly occupying the financial sector. Consultancies, corporations, and investment conglomerates. They arm-twist businesses into complying with certain political preferences – For example, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, three of the largest asset managers in the world and signatories to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, forced climate change policies on ExxonMobil. As the biggest shareholders in the oil company, they placed an anti-oil member on its board of directors, clearly antithetical to its core business interests. So the larger point here is that businesses are meant to compete for profit. Legislatures set the laws that society needs, and governments or executives, along with the judiciary, ensure that those laws are enforced. The World Economic Forum, though, wants to usher in a new power elite, a more potent worldwide symbiosis of corporations and government that will decide what society should want. ESG helps them achieve that control over society, no doubt to their own profit. If social and environmental good alone was the goal, companies flaunting ESG wouldn't be doing business with China, an oppressive regime, and the world's worst polluter. Now that third prong, modern monetary theory, a macroeconomic theory that seems merely chaotic, is technically not a component of the Great Reset. But it is certainly one of several routes to getting us there by venezuela the U.S. through hyperinflation, starvation, and suffering, the better to bring the, co- the population under global control. It advances the idea that governments can spend freely, incur mountains of debt, and without a thought about inflation, print fiat currency to make up the difference. There is no limit to debt, deficit, or interest costs, for the printing press will handle it. At a microeconomic level, anyone can see this is fatuous. If you spend more than you earn, you go bankrupt and you lose your assets. But profligate governments can print money and raise taxes to sustain their folly. Now, modern monetary theory envisions two further controls that will crush the individual. Under the pretext of saving the planet from climate change and simultaneously ushering in a more equitable world, governments will begin to control everything, products, production, labor, even consumer spending. Companies will be required to produce certain goods and not others, and demand will be lessened by monitoring and regulating the finances of individuals. This is why we have to resist digital currency. And and in this in this article again from uh, Janet Levy. She says, under the pretext of transparency, modern monetary theory will eliminate fiat currency and autonomy and the anonymity it provides to make way for a centralized digital currency system. In a nutshell, governments will keep tabs on everything you have, everything you spend, everyone you associate with. A donation to a cause the government dislikes will make you a marked person, even without digital currency. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, a liberal and graduate of Schwab's School for Young Global Leaders, effectively managed to stifle protest by using emergency orders to freeze the funds of the mandate opposing freedom convoy. Janet Levy says the World Economic Forum's great reset of capitalism is dangerously underway, and it threatens to destroy all that Americans consider sacred, including the free market, the Constitution, the nation, and above all, the individual. I mean, that's that's a lot to take in, right? That seems like a pretty formidable challenge before us. This is the point where I will urge you to please do not forget who is really in charge of this universe. If you feel like you need some help or you need some strengthening, that's where I would encourage you to put your efforts. This is The Brian Hyde Show.